Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Thank you. Appreciate that. I was laughing, uh, the, the video that my brother shot there. Uh, he said he started with golfer, then husband, then father. Um, that tells you something about our family, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. Um, but thank you for being in church today. I think it's a great decision. Obviously, I love Generations Church. I have had the chance to be here many times speaking and just attending, and I love what God's doing. And I think, you know, unlike, I know a lot of pastors, I know a lot of churches, but unlike really any that I know of in this particular season, I don't know how long we're, we're allowed to say coming off the heels of COVID, but coming off the heels of COVID, you guys are experiencing some amazing momentum unlike many churches that I know of. And so I hope you know that. Don't take it for granted. But uh, obviously love my brother and your pastor and love the way that you uh, take care of him and love on him. And uh, so again, thank you for being here today. Um, I am also really kind of excited that your church cares about you enough to take five weeks. Five weeks is a lot in the preaching calendar uh, real estate land. Five weeks is a lot, but loves you enough to take five weeks to talk about the topic of spiritual depth and emotional health. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I've had the opportunity to travel uh, the country lately and to speak at different churches, talk to different people, not only at our church, but in different places. And it just seems as if we are all kind of in this same space. And not to mention COVID again, but it seemed as if COVID kind of revealed some things about ourselves that we did not like. And so we're searching a little bit, and it's been a tough couple of years. And um, I believe the best place that we can go to learn about emotional health and to learn about how to be better as people and more healthy as people is to church, is to God, is to Jesus, is to the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of great resources out there, but I believe that God is the best place to look for all of that. And so that's what Deep Change is all about, spiritual depth and emotional health. And we've been talking about that. You've been talking about that as a church. I'll be out uh, in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to get a chance to meet you. I don't know most of you. The church has been growing so much that I actually don't know most of you. I'd love to get a chance to meet you and say, hey, Uh, And I'll sign any books that you have out there if you'd like for me to do that. Um, I'd love to do that. But deep change is built on four practices. It's built on four practices. Feel your feelings, which uh, Pastor Jeremy shared about last week. I would encourage you to listen to that podcast. Face your past, change your habits, and embrace your limits. Four practices. Feel your feelings, face your past, uh, change your habits, and embrace your limits. I believe these practices help you to experience the spiritual depth and emotional health that we need in order to change. And so today, we're talking about facing your past, facing your past. And the purpose of all of this, the purpose of deep change is to be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is known as the greatest commandment. They came to Jesus and said, you know, what's the most important thing in all of the law or the Bible as they knew it, the Hebrew Old Testament, what's the most important thing that we could know from that? And, and Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor um, as yourself. 
So this is what we're going for. We're not just trying to be better as people, uh, self-help. We don't want to have just more things to post or uh, New Year's resolutions or anything like that. We are wanting to change because we want to be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor. We want to be able to do that. And I don't know that Jesus was being so literal as to describe those four things in the way that I'm about to, but if you look at those literally, heart, soul, mind, and strength, three of the four of those elements or categories are private. You know, I guess we could say your strength is your public life. People can see, you know, how you use your body, we could say. But heart, soul, and mind are your private world your interior world, your private life. They're the things that are happening inside of you that other people don't necessarily know what's going on. So if God wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means that a lot of that is loving him from a deeper place, a private place, an interior place, not just changing our actions, but but changing what happens um, on the inside of us. And nothing Absolutely nothing influences your heart, soul, mind, and strength more than your past experiences. Please hear that. Nothing shapes and forms your heart, soul, mind, and strength that we want to love God with and love our neighbor with like past experiences. Your journey for deep change must go through your childhood bedroom and your hometown and your high school hallways to which we all roll our eyes and say, because we don't want to do that. It's too painful or complicated or ugly, and we don't want to. And this is where, in my experience, helping people walk through this deep change journey, this is where I've, I've seen that many Christians kind of push back and resist. I've found that this practice, more than others, is the one where, depending on how you were raised, which kind of religious experiences you had, If you were raised kind of in that mainline, kind of evangelical type of church like so many of us have been, we kind of accidentally or naively bought into this idea that there is an amount of spiritual enthusiasm or spiritual commitment that would exempt us from having to do the work internally to find the freedom and the change that we want to experience. But it doesn't work that way. In order to experience deep change and to become that brand new person that Christ wants us to be, we have to look back in order to move forward. To which, again, we say, wait a second, I thought I was a new creation. I thought old things had passed away. Behold, all things are new. I thought that that was what happened when I became a Christian. And yes, it did. And thank God for that. Thank God for the fact that your past will never be held against you. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you get credit for the life of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees you as perfect because Jesus was perfect and you get credit for that. That's the gospel. So your past is not held against you when you become a Christian, but it still influences you. It's not held against you. Pastor Jeremy shared last week that there's no condemnation in Christ, and that includes emotional condemnation, but more so it's legal condemnation. You stand before God, and nothing you've ever done is held against you. Praise God for that. But all the things that you've experienced and done are influencing you. There's a new person inside of you birthed by the Spirit of God when you become a Christian. 
But there's also another roommate in there with that new spirit of God inside of you. Paul said, there's another power working within me. So you put your faith in Christ. The spirit of God moves into your life, begins to rearrange the furniture in your life. But you also have that ugly, nasty roommate that never cleans up after himself. That's your sinful nature that's still influencing you. I think my greatest quote, or my, the, my favorite quote uh, in this whole idea of deep change comes from Pete Scazzaro. And he said it like this. He said, Jesus lives in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Isn't that so true? Thank you, Jesus, that you live in my heart, but grandpa is still in my bones. And this explains why we are Christians who love God, but still have a terrible temper that's four decades old. Or we're Christians, but we still lie to avoid disappointing people. Or we're Christians, but we still splurge and spend all of our money that we shouldn't. Or we're Christians, but we run away anytime a relationship gets hard. The reason is because you do not start your Christian life with a blank canvas. You don't. Yes, your sins are forgiven, washed away as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are forgiven. But you have another power inside of you, your desires, your beliefs, your tendencies. They're still in there alongside your new heart. And this means that no matter how good your intentions are, every time you go to make a choice, you are fighting against something incredibly powerful. It's your history. It's your history. I actually brought a few photos of me from my past. They're going to put them up on the screen for you. And I want to tell you a little bit about this kid. This kid had an amazing childhood. I'm serious. Just blessed and fortunate. Two amazing parents. Great schools and churches. There's a picture in there of your pastor that is fantastic. We had, we had great parents, great schools, great churches. Learned so many amazing life lessons. Learned how to be a Christian. Learned how to be a leader. Learned how to treat people with kindness and dignity, had, had marriage and parenting modeled to us in such a way that it made our journey in, in a lot of ways so much easier. So thankful for all of that. And some of you right now, you're like, well, good for you. Mine was nothing like that. Okay. Others of you can kind of relate to that a little bit. It was like that, it, it did have a little bit of that sitcom TV feel to it. It worked, you know? And so I had an amazing childhood. But there's no such thing as a perfect childhood. Now, of course, there are environments that you grow up in that are better than others, okay? And, and I'm not in any way comparing mine and saying we're equals. If I had to choose between neglectful, abusive home or the home I had, I choose mine every time, okay? So I'm not saying that things are equal. But I am saying that there's no such thing as a perfect childhood because... As great as my parents were and are, they still have a sinful nature. And as a child, I have a sinful nature. And because they're, everyone involved is a human being with a sinful nature, that means that even the best of intentions can get lost in translation. Doesn't make anybody bad or wrong. It just means that things get lost in translation. And by the way, the same thing is true for my kids. My oldest daughter, Sadie, is here with me right now, and I am screwing up her life. She'll need to talk to a counselor, and I'm doing the best that I can. And you're doing the best that you can. You're messing your kids up too. And you're trying, and listen, all of us, are we millennials? What are we? 
I don't know, whatever generation we are, we have never been more overprotective and tried our best to be the best parents ever, still giving them baggage. Just a different kind of baggage. And we can't help it because we have a sinful nature. So even our best intentions get lost in translation. Let me just give you a few examples of what I mean, all right? The home that I was raised in was an amazing home that gave me a lot of great opportunities, but it also taught me unintentionally how to perform for people. I've been on stages like this one, holding microphones, singing, talking, and getting applause since I was four years old. And so I learned very quickly how to perform for people. I learned very quickly how to not connect on a personal level, but to connect strictly on a professional level. Unintentionally, I picked up on the unwritten rule in life that the most important thing about someone is the contribution that they make to the world, that your value is tied to your talent. And no one ever sat me down and said, now listen, here's what you need to know. Your value is tied to your talent. But everyone in my life was so talented. Everyone around me was doing amazing things and people in the name of God would prophesy and say, God's gonna use you to change the world. So I'm like eight years old thinking I'm gonna change the world. I'm 39, I haven't changed it yet. So there's some insecurity there about my contribution to the world. Nobody meant to. Things got lost in translation. I'll tell you another thing that happened because of the best of intentions. My mom loved me so much it's probably more than my brother, honestly. <laughs> Y'all didn't know him when he was younger, though. It was an easy choice. <laughs> but my mom loved me so much that she convinced me that my needs were the most important in life. I entered adulthood convinced that the mo- I was the most important person on the planet. That brought its own challenges to marriage. When my wife and I took the five love languages test in pre-marriage counseling, my answer just came back with one, mama's boy. That was the only answer for my love language. And she was, she was doing her best to love me the best she could, but it got lost in translation. This kid that was on the screen, he went to some amazing churches with amazing pastors and leaders, but somehow unintentionally lost in translation, I learned how to be very judgmental very legalistic, very harsh, look down on people, all in the name of God, of course, but but I just, I pick these things up. And again, let me just say, I'm not saying that my childhood was terrible, you know, comparing it to yours. Some of you are like, that's cute. that's, That's your problem? You were loved too much? That's fantastic. No, listen, there are some deep, 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 deep illegal and, and all kinds of other thing, wounds that are in this room from your past. I'm not saying that they are the same. Please don't hear that. But what I am saying is that all of us, no matter how good or bad, picked up along the way blessings and baggage from our past. These rules and desires and deeply held beliefs I, I picked them up and I brought them into my relationship with God. Pastor uh, Jeremy showed you this image last week and uh, clinically speaking, you could call this image the structure of the soul or the structure of self. But the image that he showed you was just, it was explaining how your desires and your deeply held beliefs affect your emotions and your thoughts and your actions. And so those desires and those deeply held beliefs, those are the things that, 
that I picked up on that were most important in life or ways, unwritten rules of the way that the world worked. And according to research, you pick these up as young as 18 months old. It's called joint visual orientation, if you wanted to know that for some lunch conversation. That, that researchers have found that as young as 18 months old, children can determine what their, their mother values by following the gaze of her eyes. And when a mother looks at something, a baby takes that as a signal that the mother desires the object or is at least paying attention to it because it must be important, to which all the parents in the room go, oh my gosh. Just 18 months old, you can watch the eyes of your parents and begin to define what's important in life. Eventually, they don't just gauge what's important, but they also begin to pick up on intentions behind actions. And you start wanting things long before you can articulate why you even want them. And this, in large part, was shaped by watching what was important to the people who raised you. Beliefs, desires. You brought them with you into your relationship with God. Now, here's where it gets tricky. If I was a meth addict before I was a Christian, or a Coke dealer before I was a Christian, We would all assume, and rightfully so, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, he would want to help deliver me from my meth addiction or my coke selling, right? We would all say, yeah, I think that would be a pretty accurate assumption. But what about people-pleasing? What about performing for people? What about my spending habits or my eating habits that I started adopting at 18 months old? If I say I was a meth addict, we'd say God's going to deliver you. But if I say I'm a people pleaser, does that count too? The fact that I learned how to eat out and eat sugary foods, does that count too? If I'm supposed to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I've got to invite the Holy Spirit in to all of the parts of me that begin being shaped and formed at 18 months old. And God says something very interesting to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, right kind of randomly in the middle of the Ten Commandments. He says to Moses this this very strange line. He says, I punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. I think Pastor Jeremy has shared on this before, but it's a really bizarre little statement that seems incredibly harsh and unfair. But in the original kind of the word for punish in the Hebrew was the word pakad. And pakad is best translated as not so much uh, punish, but as consequences that reveal themselves or become fully known. So in other words, God says to Moses in the middle of the Ten Commandments, he says, the consequences of the parents' sins become fully known or show themselves over the next three to four generations. That's the way the Bible thinks about family in this Jewish sense. They usually live together in the same home. And so that means family's not just mom and dad and kid and minivan, but in the biblical sense, family goes back a hundred years, three to four generations, which means that there were people related to you that you don't even know who they are, where their name is, but they were living during the Great Depression, forming and shaping desires and deeply held beliefs that you carry with you right now in this moment sitting in this room. And the consequences of their choices 
or the ideas that they were forming about life become fully known in your life and begin to show themselves. Everybody take a deep breath because I got some good news coming. And right now we feel this, this weight or this shame or we think about what happened to us and why people could do that or we think about what we're doing and how we're shaping and forming people. The beautiful thing about God is that when you put your faith in Jesus, he gives you a new family. And it doesn't mean that you have to abandon your old family by any means. But if you're here today, you would say, man, you don't know my story. The beautiful thing about God, knowing how formative our home life and family life is, is that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, oh, and by the way, I'm not only going to give you salvation and I'm not only going to give you new life. I'm also going to give you a new family, new brothers and sisters. That family can be dysfunctional too, I'll admit it. But it's still ours as a gift by God. And so we have these deep desires and deeply held beliefs. And and we can be in denial of them or we can be aware of them. But their influence on our life is not any less impactful. In the book, I, I gave some fictional examples of a person, a guy named Stephen or a couple named Carl and Rebecca or a girl named Stacy. And I don't have time to give you all the details, but I I thought it would be helpful as we're kind of unpacking this today to to think about this. So in there, I tell this fictional story about a couple, Carl and Rebecca. Carl and Rebecca attended their last church for more than 10 years. They dedicated their children there and became friends with the pastor and many other families in the church. But the pastor recently had been busier than normal trying to finish the, the church building project and Carl and Rebecca felt like they were being ignored. So instead of communicating how they felt to the pastor, they talked to the other families in the church about how the church, you know, wasn't like it used to be or the pastor's just too busy to care about people anymore. They decided to leave the church, convince two other couples from their small group to go with them. And when the pastor asked why they were leaving, they never answered honestly and instead spoke only in generalities. Carl and Rebecca have never acknowledged that they grew up in religious environments where keeping the peace was prioritized over honest communication. So they harbor a lot of hurt feelings and bitterness towards people, but they never bring it up. Desires, deeply held beliefs. Or Stacy. Stacy's always been a go-getter. Stacy was a star athlete in high school. She led her sorority in college. After graduating, she quickly climbed the ranks at a marketing firm. In her enthusiasm and drive to be successful, Stacy sometimes comes across as overly aggressive and makes her friends and coworkers feel intimidated. Occasionally, someone will bring it up and let Stacy know that she hurt their feelings or that she may be pushing a little too hard. But Stacy's always able to justify her behavior by saying, they're just being too sensitive, or I'm trying to get the best out of everyone, or they need to grow up. She's never recognized how much of her self-worth comes from being perceived as powerful and ambitious and in charge. Stacy's a Christian. Stacy leads a, a small group, the best small group, by the way. And you're dumb if you don't want to be a part of it. And yes, some people have left her group because they didn't like it, but they don't know what a good group is anyway. She's a Christian, but she's never realized how a lifetime of affirmation for being strong has shaped her and formed her. She doesn't recognize that her strength sometimes causes those around her to feel weak and unimportant. All of us have these stories. 
It's not just about substance abuse or, you know, addiction or, or those types of things. Those are powerful forces in our life, but it doesn't end there. Everything from our past in some way is shaping what we're bringing into this relationship with God. And Psalm 139, we need God to search us and to point out these things in us. And if I were to track your actions and thoughts and desires and feelings and reactions for a day or a week, and I was to do the same thing for the people who lived in your house with you, most of those actions, feelings, it would be pretty similar. Because even after we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we aren't doing anything fundamentally different from what our parents did or our brothers and sisters or aunts and uncles or whoever it is that raised us. But this isn't just our problem. We see this in the Bible. You know, Abraham, Father Abraham was a great man of faith and a man of God and he followed God. But when he got nervous, he lied. He would say that his attractive wife was his sister because he didn't want to get, they thought he, he thought they were going to kill him. And what's interesting is that he had a son named Isaac and Isaac was a great guy too, loved God. But Isaac lied about his wife being his sister the exact same way that his dad did. Well, then Isaac had, Two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob meant deceiver. We see the consequences of these small little actions being fully shown over three to four generations. Jacob, the deceiver, had 12 sons. 11 of them decided to lie about Joseph and try to kill him, or at least not kill him, but sell him into slavery. And we see this pattern in their life. Or David, David, we love David. David was awesome, but he was the youngest of seven. He obviously had some daddy issues. We can't get into that, but you can go read the story. David became powerful. He was the king. He was God's man, but he had an affair. David's son, Absalom, had major dad issues. There ended up being sexual assault, an affair within the family. And then their son, Solomon, ended up having major issues and probably abandoned his faith due to sexual addiction and sexual relationships becoming fully known over three to four generations. Now, if we had time, we could also talk about all the blessings that Abraham provided for his family and all the blessings that David provided for his family. And that's true for all of us, that we have blessings and baggage. The point of facing your past is not to go back and bring up everything that was wrong or dig up every skeleton. The point is not to go back and to rewrite a good childhood into a bad one. The point is not to go back and negate every blessing and make it all baggage. The point is not to become self-obsessed and never grow out of any of these things. The point is simply just to face it, just acknowledge it. It's there and it has shaped me and it has formed me. And if I want to love God and change deeply with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I cannot live in denial or with some spiritual naive optimism that I have not been shaped or formed by the experiences of my past. They're not held against me, but they influence me. And so for just a few minutes that I have left, I want to just pick one example of this. I mentioned it just a second ago. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. I want to just talk for just a moment about Joseph's story. Very famous story. You're probably familiar with it in a lot of ways. When Joseph was a teenager, he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. Over the next two decades, he spends time in a few prisons. He's falsely accused. He's forgotten about. But God raises him up, puts him in a position of power as the second most powerful man in the world, as Egypt's prime minister. Eventually, in this ironic God-providential twist of fate, 
His brothers, not knowing he's still alive, come to him for help. And Joseph has every opportunity and resource at his disposal to get even with them. But he doesn't do it. I want to just show you just a few verses together in Genesis chapter 50. It says that his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. I want you to imagine for a moment being in Joseph's position, unlimited power and resources to get even. I wonder how many times he had fantasized about a scenario exactly like this one in those two decades sitting in prison. I mean, how many imaginary arguments do you have in the car driving home from work that you win every time and dominate? with the best one-liners. Here's Joseph in prison for two decades. You know he had role-played this in some way. And here he is with all of the resources and opportunity. But somehow in Joseph, we see someone who was not bound by his past. It didn't define him in the way that it defines us, maybe. It influenced him, but it didn't define him. How? Well, I want to just give you three things we see in Joseph's story that I believed allowed his past to influence him but not necessarily define him. Just three quick little ideas we can take with us as we face our past. The first one that we see in what we read is that Joseph told the truth. Joseph told the truth. Standing in front of his brothers, he didn't sugarcoat it. He wasn't passive aggressive. His brothers were standing there and he didn't say, hey guys, great to see you. Like, no, everything's good. We're fine. No, he told the truth. He said, your intentions were to harm me. You hurt me. You tried to hurt me. But God intended it for good. And in my experience, especially if you're raised in Pentecostal churches, we tend to want to jump straight to the but God intended it for good. And we say things like, your pain has a purpose. And everybody hear me, your pain has a purpose. It does, I promise. But without facing and admitting the truth of what happened to you, you're just psyching yourself out. It's spiritual naive optimism. You have to be willing to be honest about what was done to you or by you. They hurt me. They left me. They lied to me. They made me feel insecure. They abused me. We don't want to stay there forever, but we can't skip past it. We've got to be honest. You got to face the truth. Joseph did that. He sees his brothers and he doesn't act like, hey, no hard feelings, guys. He says, hey, we all know the truth. You wanted to hurt me. But the second thing he did is he grieved his pain. He didn't just have a story to tell over and over again that defined him. He said the truth and then he grieved his pain. There's this powerful scene in the story when Joseph's brothers return from their first visit in chapter 45. And it says Joseph couldn't take it any longer. He kicked everybody out of the room but him and his brothers. And he broke down and wept so loudly that they could hear it outside of the room and the house. We can't know everything Joseph was feeling at that moment, but I think we can assume that he was both happy to see his family, but also incredibly sad. There's no telling how many times he went to bed weeping in his jail cell. But we also find a man who was comfortable with his emotions, comfortable with grief, 
And so after facing the truth, you must grieve what you lost. And just so you know, you're losing things all the time. Just as one example, every second that passes, you're losing your youth. That's just one example. But you're dealing with loss all the time. And grief is just admitting and feeling loss. It's just admitting and feeling loss. And that's why we started with feel your feelings because if you, if you don't become more comfortable feeling, then you're gonna kind of spiritually, naively bypass all of your pain. No, no, I'm good. I'm more than a conqueror. Everything's great. Let's go. Preach on victory. But we gotta be able to feel and say, you know what? I lost some things. Some things were stolen from me. Some things were done to me. I've done some things to people and I'll never be able to get that back. And I'm sad about it. I'm sad about it. I would be willing to bet, this is a bold thing to say, but I'm gonna stand by it. I would be so bold as to say that if you're here today and you're having marital problems or you feel stuck spiritually, I would be willing to bet it's because you haven't grieved some losses. You're irritable, hostile, angry, stalled out. It's because there's some things that you've lost that you haven't admitted to yourself and grieved. And everyone does it differently and everybody uses a different pace at a different times. But at some point you must be willing to admit what you lost and that you're sad about it. You lost your innocence. You lost your ability to trust people. You lost your best friend. You lost your joy. You lost someone you loved. You lost the life that you thought you were going to have. And everybody listen to me. God doesn't need you to get over it. God doesn't need you to move on. He doesn't need need you to get it together. He's not looking for all type A efficient people. He knows exactly how you feel. Isaiah says that our, our savior, Jesus Christ, was a man of sorrow and grief, associated with sorrow and grief, despised and rejected. The psalmist says that he collects our tears in a bottle and he's close to the broken heart and he comforts those whose spirits are crushed. In our grief and sadness and crushed spirits, we have an opportunity to experience the presence of God unlike any other way that we could do that. And so God doesn't want you to just grin and bear it. He wants you to feel it and grieve it. Feel it and grieve it. But that's not where Joseph stopped based on what we know about his story. He didn't just stay with a a painful story. He grieved the loss that he experienced in his life. But the third thing Joseph did is that Joseph changed his family pattern. He changed it. And this is a truly remarkable part of Joseph's story because here he is with unlimited resources, the power to get even. And if you and I were there, or if Joseph had decided that he would have been acting, I'm gonna get even, I'm gonna make it right, I'm gonna come out on top. If he had done that, he would have been acting exactly like his father and his brothers. Remember, three to four generations. Jacob deceived his dying father and tricked his brother Esau and stole from him. He was conned by his father-in-law. Jacob was conned and lied to by his father-in-law. Joseph's brothers had rejected him and sold him into slavery and lied about it. And in this moment, Joseph could have continued the family way. I win. But he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't do it. He says in verse 19 of chapter 50, he says, don't be afraid. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So in this moment, that, that, that everything is now at this moment and Joseph decides we're going to do it differently from now on. We're gonna tell the truth. We're gonna not get even and we're gonna take care of one another. We're not gonna put what we want first. And as we are here this morning, we carry with us so many bad habits and addictions and emotional hurts and pains. But listen to me, it's possible with God's help to decide today, it stops with me. It stops with me. We're not doing it this way anymore. The family tree is gonna have a fork in the road and it stops with me. And I'm not just talking about those big glaring addiction and abuse issues. Of course God wants to help us with those. But I'm talking about all of the desires and deeply held beliefs that have been passed down over generations. It stops with me. And I'm so blessed to have four generations of preachers and pastors and Christians, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. But can I be honest with you? There are some of you in here, you don't have any of that, and, you're, and your past is, is jacked up, and you're a first-generation Christian. And there's a part of me that's like really jealous because your family's gonna talk about you as the patriarchs of the faith in your family. Man, my family was never like that, but Uncle Bobby, Dennis, Sarah, They were the ones who walked into church that day. They were the ones who got saved. They were the ones who got baptized. Everything changed with them. It stops with me. It stops with me. We're not doing it this way anymore. Not because we got willpower or we're strong or we're naively optimistic or because somebody prayed for us. All of those things are important, but because we're gonna face it, acknowledge it, deal with it, ask the Holy Spirit to come all the way in and we're changing it. We're changing it. And so my prayer for you today is that you would face it, you'd grieve it, and you'd change it. Let's face it. Let's grieve it. And let's, I'm gonna pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you sent your son to come and die on the cross so that my past would not be held against me. That I will stand before you with a clean conscience knowing that I get credit for the life of Christ. Thank you for that, God. But God, I pray for all of the ways that my past is still influencing me. I pray for all of the ways that our past is still influencing everyone who's listening to my voice right now. And God, I pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that you'd come all the way in and help me in your perfect way to see all the ways that my past is shaping and forming my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. The way it's affecting the way that I'm able to love the people around me. All of the subtle things and desires and beliefs and life rules that I have that I picked up along the way, God, that are keeping me from loving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, I pray that you'd come all the way in, all the way in, and point out those ways to me. Give me the courage to face it, to grieve it, and to change it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.